Hello and welcome to another fun-packed edition of the album years with myself, uh, Stephen Wilson and Tim Bowness. And Tim, um, at the end of the last episode, I rather facetiously suggested that uh, rather than doing one of our marathon sort of years when we couldn't get the list down sort of somewhere below a thousand albums we wanted to talk about, maybe we should pick a year where there actually wasn't a lot of stuff that we particularly liked so that we could keep it a little bit more brief. So we've kind of attempted to do that with this year, haven't we? So we've picked 2001 or you've picked. Well, I picked 2001 randomly. I thought we're not going to find anything there of value for us. And then it turns out I was completely wrong. I was amazed at how many albums that I owned from the year, had listened to from the year. And by the end of it, I was coming to the conclusion, a conclusion that you are going to disagree with, that it was a golden age. Now, I have to admit, I've been very lazy again, and I've let you do all of the hard work in putting together the shortlist. And as we've kind of already mentioned, it's much longer than than I expected it to be, which tells me that in 2001, I was still very engaged with new music and I was still buying a lot of the new records that were coming out. There's a lot of things on this list that I still love, still own, or certainly things that I bought at the time. Maybe I don't own them anymore, but I certainly did buy them at the time. So I was definitely very much immersed in the world of new music, as I'm sure you were. So, Mm -hmm. which kind of begs the question, when did the rot really set in then? Maybe it is the fact that so much music now is kind of um, bombarded all the time by so much music these days, aren't we? Probably more so than ever before. Well, on one level, yes, but I suppose we're not bombarded with the eclectic selection that we were perhaps when we were younger. And I've said this many times before that, you know, during the 80s and 70s, you had very few TV programmes, very few music radio programmes that really dealt with new music, yet they dealt with a tremendous range of material, whereas I think part of the problem perhaps is the X factor factor that suddenly music became very much more pure entertainment, pure mainstream. You weren't getting the sort of diversity of releases, even on things like VH1, because if you actually think of this period, you know, VH1 and MTV were at one point proper music channels and very... Much over the last sort of 20 years, they evolved into reality television um, channels. So, you know, sometimes I think it's about the absence of music being exposed. Mm. I think it's also to do with listening to music through the computer. You're, you're kind of subject very often to the whims of algorithms, not tastemakers, but algorithms. So they're, they're kind of analysing what you listen to and they're presenting you all the time with more of the same, more of the same, more of the same. So those kind of outliers, the things that you didn't know that you liked or you didn't like until you kind of, you know, forced yourself in a way to listen to them, those kind of things don't happen so much now, do they? Because you're kind of kept within this little bubble of your own tastes by algorithms on YouTube and Spotify. Yeah, I think, you know, perhaps the only equivalent of that, which happened at the time as well, is just friends recommending releases to friends. I mean, that still happens. Let's start with, you know, the first category in your list is is a substantial one this time, which is mainstream slash pop music. And, and again, kind of testament to the fact that there was a lot of different and interesting things going on um, in the mainstream pop world in, in 2001. The first two on the list, which I think we, we want to talk about, and maybe we can talk about these, you know, in conjunction with each other, is Bjork, Vespertine and, and Radiohead's Amnesiac. And two artists really that had kind of come through over the previous 10 years and become very much hugely respected uh, by both tastemakers 
and a substantial audience alike, at least, you know, certainly at the time, and arguably making some of their most innovative and interesting music. And, you know, again, we've talked so often about how bands are kind of in a transitional stage. When they're in a transitional stage, sometimes they make their more interesting music, their most interesting music. And I'd be the first to say that I've, I've you know, over the last 10 years, I've kind of lost interest in Bjork. Um, I did, I did keep buying her records for a while after this, but I just didn't hear any tunes after a while. And, and Vespertine is a, a great example of an album that is very strong melodically, but also she's creating a completely unique musical world for herself on this record, almost like a chamber electronic music, if, something, if yeah, such yeah. a thing is possible. Yeah. Well, I think you're right. I think it's kind of chamber electronica, really, isn't it? It's kind of chamber classical meets cutting edge electronica. And at the time... She still had a tremendous flair for melody. And there's a real emotion in this album. There's a real sense of loss and melancholy. And and sort of like you, I've kind of lost interest over the last decade or so in, in Bjork's work. And I think partly it's because it blurs into one for me. After this album, they seem to be more experimental or more commercial excursions, but nothing seemed quite as different. You know, up to this point, I think she's progressing with each album, doing something radically different. And each album is is kind of a vital sound world. And um, it's an odd thing with Björk, because obviously I, I still think she's one of the most important artists of the last, you know, three or four decades. But weirdly enough, I do often go back to the Sugar Cubes debut, which I think is a really mm. fresh statement. It's full of energy and there's nothing cynical about it. Yeah, it's a wonderful record. Yeah, I agree. Uh, life's too good, yeah. So... And I think you can say something similar about Radiohead in a way, can't you? Although I still am very much engaged with Radiohead because I think they have they have kind of got that trick down of almost wrong-footing wrong the audience. They don't yeah. just give you always what you expect. You know, they're going to do something a bit different. And I think this was a, a, no exception, this record Amnesia. I mean, when I heard Pyramid Song, I was just destroyed by how good it was, you know, in a, in, I mean, in a good way. Yeah, and no, I think it's fantastic. I mean, I think the interesting thing about Radiohead, and you know, we discussed them in a previous show, was that I always felt that um, you know, I discovered the band on the very, very early singles, and in fact, they were on a TV show with No Man. You probably don't remember this. We were on a show called The Beat, and Radiohead, I think, were doing some of their earliest, if not earliest, TV performances as well, and they performed Creep, and um, it was fantastic. And I sort of followed their career from early on, and. I kind of felt they were evolving in a really interesting way. But when OK Computer came out, which I think is a wonderful album, I've got to say this before I go on to say what I'm going to say, I didn't think it was rock music for the 21st century. I, I thought that an awful lot of the praise wasn't right for that particular album. It's a wonderful album, but it was certainly not the most progressive or forward-thinking rock album of the day. Whereas with Kid A, they became everything that the critics had said OK Computer was. And for me, Amnesiac, which I know kind of came out at the same sessions as Kid A, was even more reinforcement of that. And I think, yes, listening to Pyramid Song, fantastic piece of music. Um, but the album as a whole um, constantly flits between very experimental, glitchy electronic pieces, um, totally redefining what a rock band can be and then obviously bringing in really unusual influences from the likes of you know Alice Coltrane or even sort of trad jazz you know there's some wonderful um about turns and what I kind of liked about it as well is that we were living it in a period when Radiohead's OK Computer had influenced a whole generation of bands Coldplay, Muse, Elbow 
And Radiohead themselves were doing something completely different rather than capitalising on it. And they weren't doing what I always used to refer to as a U2. You know, U2 would occasionally wrong foot, but it was never that different. You know, pop is really interesting, so is acting baby, but it isn't fundamentally that different from Unforgettable Fire or War. I always kind of felt that the blueprint of U2 remained very clear in everything they did, whereas actually with Radiohead, they ripped up the rule book completely. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Amnesiac was almost like the leftovers from, from Kid A, but I much prefer it personally. I know Kid A is yeah, seen here. as the... Kid A is seen as the seminal record, one of the one of the greatest records of all time, and I, I've never quite I've never quite liked it as much as Amnesia, and I think it's partly because I just there's just three or four songs on Amnesia that I think are are just completely outstanding. Knives Out and Pyramid Song being being yeah. my two favourites, and of course the the band have gone on to to become almost national treasures in that sense, haven't they? They they seem I think I can't remember if we talked about this before, but they seem to have that thing which I love. Um, in fact, we're going to talk about another artist later. I has it also, Aphex Twin. They don't appear to give a shit what people expect of them. They yeah. really don't. And in many ways, that equals integrity. You know, when, when an artist doesn't really care what the audience is expecting or what the audience wants, that equals integrity, doesn't it? Uh, and that's when, that's when you get people that kind of have longevity in their career. They're not chasing their fans. Quite the opposite. Yeah, I completely agree. And um, they've never gone back on that either. You know, one of the things with Björk, we were talking earlier, is that from Vespertine, she has had the occasional backtrack where she's almost recalling the sort of heyday, commercial heyday of the mid-90s of her work. And Radiohead have never gone back on themselves. And, you know, one of the things that's kind of interesting about this year and this album is that, if memory serves, this was a huge album. And it was incredibly uncompromising. And this is why I'm kind of saying that 2001, in a way, was a bit of a golden age, that you had albums like Tool Lateralis and um, Amnesiac that were not making any concessions to commerciality. And they were getting to number one. You know, they were selling in vast quantities. And you're quite right. They've kind of um, gone on and pursued a very singular path ever since. And, And luckily for us, you know, they've remained successful because a bit like Pink Floyd, they are one of those bands that are kind of global colossi who have integrity who you can look up to and um, still see as a role model so we better move on um obviously talk about radiohead all, all, all episode yeah so some other mainstream stroke pop records from this year you've already mentioned muse uh, second album uh, origin of symmetry definitely one of the sort of post one of the bands that came through in the wake of of the success of uh of radiohead along, along with coldplay as you say um uh, Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds, No More Shall We Part. Now, there's a couple of records here you, you've mentioned you wanted to talk about, which I don't know. So I'm going to, in fact, there's four records here. That <laughs> I don't grief. Know. I'm going to hand over to you. Yeah. So I, obviously I didn't buy any of these at the time. So yeah. this is where I have to defer to you. The Divine Divine Comedies Regeneration, uh, Kings of Convenience, Quiet is the New Loud, Mercury Revs, All is Dream, and Elbow Asleep in the Back. So I don't know any of these records. So... Tell us about these records, Tim. Can we, can we lump them together or not? It is, no, we can't really. I mean, this is going to be like an extended drum solo now, of course, as I go on about these albums. But Divine Comedy Regeneration, um, very different album for the band because I think that their earlier work, which is magnificent, had an incredible flair, pop sensibility, Scott Walker-esque grandeur and so on. This was the band 
almost kind of cowed down. They sounded depressed. And an interesting thing is that they brought in Nigel Godrich, the Radiohead producer, to produce this album. And this is perhaps the only Divine Comedy album where you can say it ties in with the zeitgeist. Because the exciting thing about Divine Comedy in some ways in the 90s was that they didn't sound like anything around them. And a lot of their influences seemed to come from elsewhere, you know, different decades, different genres. Whereas this one, in some ways, was almost their response to OK Computer. It's a very down-at-heel, more rock-oriented album. But because of his voice, which is, is you know, is a wonderful instrument in itself, um, it distinguishes itself as something different. And I know that it's an album I think that um, Hannon has kind of felt is, is one of his weakest in retrospect. But I think it's still a very strong piece of work because it shows this confident, witty performer almost in a low moment. And um, so therefore it kind of reveals something different about Divine Comedy. And um, I think, you know, it's an interesting addition to the catalogue. Um, Elbow were another band, I guess, kind of signed in the wake of Radiohead. And you can sort of hear elements of OK Computer's production in Asleep at the Back. But for me, it's sort of a very open-hearted, very emotional album that is quite honest with its influences. You hear a lot of Blue Nile, a lot of Talk Talk, even a lot of early Genesis in there. And I think that, um, you know, Guy Garvey has an incredibly expressive voice. And this album, a lot of which was written before they were signed, before they were known, a little like the Sugar Cubes album we were talking about, there's no self-consciousness. This is music that they wanted to put out there. And in some ways, although they've done some tremendous stuff since, this is the album that I would rate as Elbow's strongest. Um, Kings of Convenience, um, they were an unusual Norwegian duo and very influenced by Simon and Garfunkel. It was a bizarre sound to be fashionable at the time, but they produced a couple of incredibly pretty albums. Um, that were just harmony vocal with acoustic guitars and, and they did it extremely well. Mercury Rev, this was um, the album after Deserter's songs and basically found the band stretching that, you know, the kind of Disneyfication that they had in the production was uh, in overdrive on this album. And it's um, quite an unusual piece of work because in some ways it's a far more excessive variation on the more discreet and ethereal moments on Deserter Songs. And I've always liked it through it as an underrated release. Okay. Uh, well done. <laughs> was, uh, very succinctly put. Four, four albums in uh, in about as many minutes as, uh, as that, I think. So uh, well done. Okay. I, so I don't know any of those records, but I have to go and check them out. So also on the list, we have Pulp, We Love Life. Didn't buy that one either. Uh, Depeche Mode, Exciter. Did buy that one. Not their best. Were you excited by it? Were you? Not really, no. I mean, I love Depeche Mode, but th this was like, this is the beginning of a little bit of a slide, it has to be said. REM reveal, you, you are our, our resident <laughs> REM expert. I, I've never listened to an REM album all the way through. In your so life. I don't, know. I, I don't know. I bought it. Yeah, but you can't remember anything I, about I, it. I honestly, I, I remember being disappointed because I thought Up was uh, a very unusual album and very underrated. And this seemed to be more REM 
attempting to sort of revive biggest rock band on the planet identity and it wasn't for me gorillas first album um i don't again i don't know much about that. very good very um, enjoyable you, i mean yeah i do yeah i mean had it liked it um this was damon alban in a kind of invented pop band guys it was allowing him to do things that he couldn't do in blur and Blur, to be fair, were getting more interesting with each album and developing influences from, you know, Moroccan uh, music as much as anything else. They had some really interesting rhythms in in the later Blur albums, probably influenced a little by Talking Heads as well, I think. And Gorillaz was his pure pop guys and they created a cartoon band to front it. And um, yeah, it, it was very inventive and it was fun. Clearly, you bought a lot more records this year than I did. Although I'm looking, um, I'm actually looking down at the, the electronic category to come and I've bought pretty much every single record on that list. See, so- this is it. This is where I've got zero yeah. Okay. So, uh, so because I I say that because I'm going to defer to you again oh. uh, on the next two you've got on the list. Bridget Fontaine, Keekland, is that how you say it? Keekland? Oh and, yeah. And Noir Desire, which is a an album, a band I've never heard of, but also apparently has Bridget Fontaine as a guest on. So, t- tell us about these albums. If well, you, you know, like you know Bridget Fontaine. Bridget Fontaine. Um, I know of her. Yes. Yeah. I know of her. Yeah. French singer songwriter who kind of in, experimented with world music and beats well before other people. And it's one of those interesting stories like Battiato of somebody who's huge in her own country, France, pretty much unknown outside of that and has made some genuinely innovative albums. And um, Kiki Lam was kind of her album in the era post-Britpop, post-trip-hop, post-drum and bass. And she's experimenting with all of those things. She's a bit like um, a French Marianne Faithful in that she kind of keeps up with what's happening around her and always manages to forge the music in, in her identity. And um, Desir Noir were um, a French band who were very big in the um, 90s. One of those stories where a little like Roy Harper, um, don't look it up with the Noir Desir lead singer. But um, this was oh, perhaps really? a bit like that, yeah. Don't look it up. Don't go onto Wikipedia and look up don't Noir look. Desir. It's a don't look. Definitely don't look. Whatever guys. you do. Don't look. Just don't do it. You won't like what you read. And um, this was their last album before the incident. Not Porcupine Trees, the incident, but the incident that we dare not speak of. And okay. um, it was really, really interesting. You know, this was a band that were kind of mainstream French pop rock, yet experimenting with... Um, blues and trip-hop in really odd ways. And they did one track with um, Brigitte Fontaine on this that was 24 minutes long. And it's almost got this kind of metronomic can quality to it. So again, you know, to have an album that was top 10 and winning awards in France that's got a 24-minute can-esque experimental groove piece, um, it speaks to me once more that this was an age in which people could take risks and that those risks would pay off. White stripes, white blood cells, uh, the strokes, is this it? I suppose both both kind of exponents of the sort of new generation of uh, American yeah. alternative rock music. I, I was never particularly into either myself. Uh, were you no, two? same here. I mean, you know, a little like with the, the grunge wave before it, I could see that it was interesting. I could see they were doing something different mm. with rock music, bringing back, you know, some post-punk attitudes in, in certain respects. 
but it didn't really um, communicate to me. I probably had more time for white stripes than the strokes, but you know. Yeah. And then the final final entry in the mainstream pop categories is Prince, The Rainbow Children, which was a bit of a return to form, but uh, it's definitely in, in that sort of era of Prince, it's one of the better albums. But the problem is I'm not sure anyone was listening by that point. He was putting uh, out too much, wasn't he, really? And The Rainbow Children actually is a really good one, but it had come off the back of two or three that, that I, I think a lot of his fans had, including myself at the time, actually. I didn't hear Rainbow Children until until comparatively recently. Um, so I had also drifted away. Things like the three-disc Emancipation set where I was struggling to find, you know, two or three songs that I felt were up there with the best of Prince across 36 songs. Mm. And then following that up with a four-disc set, the, the Crystal Ball set, with yeah, Ditto, yeah. really. Yeah, it, I'd kind of been put off it a little bit. So I wasn't hearing at the time records like Rainbow Children. But actually, in retrospect, it is a, it is a, it is a good record. It, it's, it's obviously right in the middle of his religious zeal peak Mm -hmm. so let's move on to something that a category that i can talk about with some authority because i did buy almost all of these records on this list uh the electronic category so there was some great stuff going on in the world of electronic music uh at the turn of the millennium Mm -hmm. probably the ones that i think we want to talk about or focus on the most are the aphex twin record from from 2001 which as as we talk is is only I think the first of two albums, two full length albums he's released in the twenty first century. So there was yeah, yeah. this album called Drugs. I don't know how you exactly how you pronounce it, but it's spelt D R U K Q S. I think it's pronounced Drugs. And then Syro, which came out three or four years ago. Um, so he hasn't been the most prolific, although it's been various EPs and side projects. But this was a grand statement. This was a double CD after about four or five years of not releasing anything, exploring a style of music which came to be known as drill and bass, which is this very kind of frenetic programming style. And the reason I say that is because I want to talk about another record in conjunction with this, which is the Venetian Snares record from this year, Doll, Doll, Doll. And Venetian Snares is like Aphex Twin on steroids. I mean, it's just, it's like having your head kicked in. It's almost noise in the sense that it's so brutal and so relentless. But the programming style is ridiculously off the scale. I mean, these are people that just sound like they've spent days and days and days just programming the beats, cutting them up, reconstructing them. And Aphex Twin's Drugs was kind of the, the sort of popular face of this style which a lot of other artists were exploring this year. Square Pusher also released, you know, an album this year called Go Plastic. And Orteca released one of their most difficult records, Confailed, this year, which are kind of all exploring this idea of taking electronic music almost into the world of abstract, the abstract noise mm. world. It's difficult. It's almost impossible to imagine you could dance to this music. And of course, we, you know, we have to remember that a lot of electronic music came out of DJ culture yeah. and the idea that you could dance to electronic music. And then you hear albums like Aphex Twins Drugs and, and Venetian, Stairs, Venetian Snares and the Square Pusher album. You think, well, you couldn't possibly dance to this. This is the electronic music that's intended purely for, for listening rather than dancing. This is kind of the poster child for that kind of approach. And of course, the Aphex Twin album is very varied, isn't it? Isn't it? So it has these kind of very beautiful... Mm. Um, prepared piano pieces on it as well. Yeah, well, he was supposedly influenced by John Cage and Eric Satie on some of it. And you can hear the Satie, certainly, because um, there's a lot of sort of computer-generated acoustic minimalist pieces that are very, very beautiful. 
Um, so it's quite unexpected in a way, isn't it? And it, you know, lest we forget, it didn't particularly get great reviews at the time, did it? It was sort of. I think it's. A, I th- I do think it's a classic record. It's a very. It's a very schizophrenic record because mm. you do have these two extremes of the very, very beautiful player piano pieces and then the f- very, very frenetic drill and bass uh, electronica. It's almost hard to imagine somebody being able to appreciate both. And I, I do, but maybe a lot of people didn't, you know. So it, probably in that sense, it would have been seen as very protect- very willful and very self-indulgent. And remember, it's a, almost a two-hour long record as well. It's a double CD. It's a lot to take in. I think that's part of the problem. It's, it's a double album and it is relentless, really. Um, I mean, I think that even some of the electronic, the, you know, the more um, vicious pieces have sort of quite pretty detuned synths so there was always something quite pretty and heartfelt even in the midst of the chaos of the more aggressive Aphex Twin uh, pieces I thought but yeah some of the reviews at the time I remember suggesting that it was more of the same or that um, oh yes he's just doing what he did five years earlier which um was not true at all, really. You know, the player piano, no. player piano no. stuff alone was a completely fresh direction for him. Yeah, I mean, you could say that. I, I, you could say that about Syro, the last album we put out four years ago. It, it definitely felt a little bit familiar, but certainly at the time of, of drugs, it was quite. I think it was. You know, it came off the back of two massive singles. Yeah, not yeah. massive in a commercial sense, but two very, very high-profile experimental electronic singles in Come to Daddy and Window Licker, obviously both of which had those just amazing Chris Cunningham videos that were unforgettable if you saw them. And so perhaps Drugs felt slightly anticlimactic um, coming off the back of those singles. I think it's a, no, it's a really good point because I think that there was a lot of anticipation for this, really. And, and perhaps that was it that people were expecting more. Ironically, despite the review saying it was more of the same, I think people were wanting more of the same, that the two singles had sort of carved a new audience for him. And as you say, particularly those videos were just astonishing at the time. But the music also was really interesting. You know, this was Aphex Twin, I think, really coming into his own. So let's move on. So another one that I think this is not the best example of, of what he does, but actually, in a sense, everything he does is very similar anyway. Yeah. Uh, so I'm talking about The Caretaker now. And he's still making records which basically sound pretty much the same as the one he made this year. So he, I think he's fair to say this is an artist that has a gag, doesn't he? <laughs> he has a gag. It's a brilliant gag. And he mines it kind of relentlessly, doesn't he? Uh, so, I mean, how to describe the I mean, the, the clue is in the name, isn't it? Kind yeah, of. yeah, yeah. Well, this is two. There's two. I'd say he's got two gags, really. Um, so the caretaker, he got his name from the caretaker in the film, this Kubrick film version of The Shining, Stephen King's novel. And he said originally that he was very influenced by the fact that they were playing 20s music in the background during some of the scenes with the caretaker and Jack Nicholson. So that was part of the inspiration, wasn't it? Yeah, but it's this idea that when you hear those 20 songs in the film, you're hearing them in the ambience of this big ballroom. So it yes, has this yeah, yeah, kind yeah. of, almost like it's beaming in from from another time, from, you know, almost coming through from a time machine or something. So he's using old 78 RPM records. You can hear all the surface noise, but it's drenched in reverb. So it, sound, it sounds like it's echoing from the bottom of a well or from another time. Well, this is and it. it. And it has got this very haunting quality to it in that respect, hasn't it? Completely. And I think that, 
What's interesting is, you know, I, I believe he went around the sort of um, secondhand stores of Southport or wherever and was just buying up old 78s and sampling them. And these pieces would have been incredibly popular during the day, but divorced from that. And as you say, with this really haunting ambience that he applies to everything, um, it takes it into another dimension. And I was kind of wondering that it's like, you know, could you actually be taking the Libertines and Ronan Keating processing this and making them sound like <laughs> the hauntology for tomorrow, you know. Um, but yeah, it, it's, it's a wonderful effect. And, and this is the beginning of what he does, because of course, his first idea was that it was this 20s music in a big ballroom. And over the recent um, period, he's developed this notion that it's somebody, it's a man, the caretaker, who is dissolving into dementia. So the samples are getting even stranger, even more drawn out, even more atmospheric, and at times pretty heartbreaking. Yes, in fact, that, that, that's fair to say. Yeah, I mean, the last cycle of music he released, Everywhere at the End of Time, as you say, six albums that gradually document the descent into dementia. So the music starts off relatively untreated. You're hearing these kind of old records from the 20s, old jazz standards from the 20s, a little bit of reverb, a little bit of texture added to them, but nothing too radical. And then by the time of the sixth LP, you cannot hear the music at all. It's become so abstracted, so processed, slowed down, speeded up, reversed, drenched in reverb, echo, overlaid. So you get several pieces of music playing at the same time. It's very reminiscent in a way of, of William Basinski's Disintegration Loops, isn't it? This idea that you can kind of give this, this suggestion of decay through processing and recycling old records and allowing that process of, of breakdown, the music almost dissolving, to kind of be analogous with this idea of civilization breaking down in the case of the Basinski or somebody's mental state breaking down in the case of the caretaker, which of course is what happens in the Shining movie itself, isn't it? This is a kind yes, of document, yeah. a document of someone's mental breakdown. So it's in many ways, it's a, it's a very obvious idea but again, he's the guy that had it, and he's done it over the last 20 years very well. Um, it's almost a case of you don't really need to own more than one <laughs> album, though, isn't it, of this? you know? Probably, that, yeah. That I mean, the gag, yeah. maybe get the last cycle and you've got the two gags, yeah. really, um, yeah. everything yeah. that he does. But it, it's great, and I think that a bit like the Basinski, it does bear listening to in that it can be quite an emotional experience or quite an interesting experience just losing yourself in the music of a caretaker. Uh, everyone should have one caretaker record <laughs> in their collection, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> A no-risk um, disc. <laughs> a no-risk disc, yeah. Could be any of them. Uh, so other records that came out this year, um, Fortet's Pause, Plaid, Double Figure, Zero Seven, Simple Things, Christian Finesse, Endless Summer, Daft Punk, Discovery, Monolake, Cinemascope, Tim Hecker, Haunt Me, Haunt Me, Do It Again. But the one, actually, the other one I would like to talk about briefly, which was a late addition to the list. I didn't realise it was 2001 until I was spinning it the other day and I, and I kind of had to drop Tim a line and say, this album came out this year, we need to speak about it, is Prefuse 73, Vocal Studies and Uprock Narratives. Now, I immediately got you interested in this artist, Tim, just because of the name. That's true. Because, yeah, because he calls himself Prefuse 73, as I understand it, because he thinks jazz fusion music was only good before <laughs> 1973, which I think is something we can kind of concur with, isn't it? Or certainly have some sympathy with... Yeah, I go uh, for sympathy because, you, know, you know, I quite like yeah. some of the stuff after that, especially Agreed. Weather Report Agreed. and Herbie Hancock. But, you know, yeah. Yeah, there is some good music. But certainly there is a golden age of, of jazz fusion music, isn't there, that kind of existed up until about 73. We've even talked about that. That's nothing to do with the artist at all because he doesn't make jazz music. He doesn't make fusion music. He makes essentially 
a very, very abstracted experimental form of hip-hop music. And this was his first album, a guy called Scott Heron. And the story of this album is he was a producer, engineer. He was working with a lot of fairly generic hip-hop artists at the time, creating beats for them to rap over. And in his spare time, he started to chop up the vocals and almost begin to incorporate them into the fabric of the music, into the fabric of the beats, cutting up the voices, using the voices as almost rhythmical devices, and it's a, it's a fascinating kind of hip-hop record. It's, it's kind of an instrumental hip-hop record, except the irony there is, of course, a lot of the main components come from processing voices. Yeah. Um, I didn't, did, you, did you listen to the album, Tim? Did I did listen it to it, yeah. I mean, I thought it was interesting. It's, it's one of those albums where, um, a bit like The Border Canada, I could see it was interesting, but it didn't necessarily move me beyond thinking, okay, I quite like that. I mean, it kind of blew me away in 2001. I don't know, and I still like it now, but at the time it was really fresh. I'd never heard anything quite like it. So possibly it's one of those albums I have a nostalgic attachment to because I heard it at the time when it was fresh. So it still seems fresh to me now. But it's, it felt like a really revolutionary record at the time. And it was released on Warp Records, a, you know, a label that yeah, were yeah. known for you know, IDM and electronic music. But it was essentially coming from more from the hip-hop tradition. So for someone like myself who wasn't so immersed in the world of hip-hop, you know, I was familiar with things like DJ Shadow and DJ Crush, but but not much beyond that at the time. This was kind of an interesting doorway into that world. It was like halfway between, say, what Aphex Twin was doing and the world of traditional hip hop music. Yeah, well, I think you're right. It's like you, when, when things hit you, because like obviously with, um, you know, the Tim Hecker album released this year, it's often described as Boards of Canada-esque. And, and when we were discussing Boards of Canada before, for me, um, perhaps because I didn't hear it at the time, it always seemed quite pretty rather than revolutionary whereas the the hecker album i kind of thought was quite um a deep investigation into that genre that became known as as hauntology so it's sometimes when you're sort of introduced to music you know it, it can have a greater impact for sure although i do think boards of canada that's that first album is a stone cold classic but anyway uh we'll agree to disagree there <laughs> So let, let's move on to, um, well, heavy, heavy. In fact, you've already mentioned one of the heavy records from this year that, stand, that definitely stands out is the Tool album, mm -hmm. Lateralis. Uh, I suppose for many people, they would think of Tool as almost like the radio head of metal in a way, aren't they? They almost seem to have this respect as experimental artists, forward-looking artists, whilst at the same time being firmly rooted in a... A genre, uh, in this case, metal or, or, or heavy metal or heavy rock. There's also a lot of King Crimson in there in terms of their rhythms, their time signatures and some of the soundscape. You know, you can hear that sort of 80s minimalist classical influence King Crimson in what Tool do. The one thing I kind of think is interesting about Lateralis is that a little like Amnesiac, and I guess this is why it's, it's the radio head of metal, it's not full of tunes. It's not full of showboating. It's not full of anything that would make it an obvious hit with anybody. Yet this was, again, number one in the States. You know, this was a band making a 70-minute-plus album with often 10-minute pieces that went into bizarre time signatures or time signature grooves. It didn't make any concessions, yet was hugely influential and popular. And, and for that alone, I kind of really respect it all. I, I did buy it at the time. I remember thinking at the time it was far too long. 
far too long. And, and I know there are tool fans will be up in arms about me saying that. I, it was 75 minutes and it's not a particularly varied musical vocabulary, is it? I mean, that, not at I all. Think that's the prob- I think that's the problem for me is if, if you have a fairly uh, focused musical vocabulary, for me, it always works better if your albums are about 40 minutes long. And here was like an almost 80 minute album. And I, I, I can't say I ever got through it more than once or twice. It was just re- it was just such a, a kind of, but I mean, brilliant. I mean, absolutely brilliant. What they, what they were doing was phenomenal. I just didn't need 80 minutes of it. I, I, I agree. And I think one of the reasons why Amnesiac is one of the greatest Radiohead statements is that it's so diverse, but it's also really succinct. It's about 40 to 44 minutes long, isn't it? You know, it's yeah. a great album in the classic sense, but it's also a great album in the truly progressive sense. Yeah. So talking of progressive, I think the other major metal, arguably the most influential metal album from this year, was one that I'm ashamed to say I had some hand in. I'm actually very proud to say I had, <laughs> had some hand in it. Wrote the uh, album, was, sang the album, produced the album. Uh, it's the Opeth record, uh, Blackwater Park, which I think among Opeth's oeuvre seems to be the one that people unanimously say is a bit of a landmark, you know, a bit of a classic record. And in retrospect, I can see that what we did on that record was something quite new because it was bringing a kind of almost sound design aesthetic, a a very sort of deep layered production aesthetic to the world of extreme metal. Mm. And it's interesting because, um, you know, we just talked about the Tool record having a kind of uniformity of sound. And I think that's why I was never completely able to give myself to it. There wasn't enough going on. And what I think we were able to do on Blackwater Park, at Michael's behest, I mean, Michael invited me to work on the record with him and I just kind of did what I did. But I kind of realised in retrospect, what we did on that record was to give much more of a producer's aesthetic to an extreme metal record, such that there are these layers, there are these sound design moments. It's been interesting to see it become quite influential in in that respect. And And I do take a lot of pride I mean, it's mostly Michael's record, mostly Michael's ideas, but I, th- I think the combination of his songwriting and his sound and, and me coming along, sort mm. of helping produce the record, we did. Well, I'm sure you brought a great deal of sonic sophistication to it. I'm sure you brought ideas that maybe they weren't able to realise before your involvement in some way. Well, I remember the first thing I did was uh, he played an, a lead guitar part and I said, let's reverse that, you know, and I literally just took the file, it was on Pro Tools, and I flipped it over and and I could see the big grin on his face straight away. He's like, this is what I brought you in for, you know, yeah. this is not stuff we would have done ourselves. And I have to say, since then, Michael has learned all of my tricks and does them much better than I do even. But but at the time, I think he was he was still, that, that was kind of new to him, sort of doing yeah. those kind of things. And I'd been doing those things. So... We we had a lot of fun making that record, and and um, it's still got something to it, I think, which sounds like sounds like the future in in two thousand and one. Well, I think it was an interesting period, wasn't it, for metal? Because I guess Opeth, Anathema, My Dying Bride were bands that started off as pretty raw, almost death metal bands with the sort of grunt, growl yeah. vocals, and became something very different and and yeah you know i can say i think opeth was was arguably far bigger than the my dying bride and the um anathema albums but all of those bands were kind of finding something certainly more openly emotional certainly more openly beautiful and and it's kind of interesting that you know bands who come from such an uncompromising background of brutality um opening themselves to other very different influences whether that be you know, chamber classical or the sort of sound world that you brought to 
to Opeth. And so in that sense, you know, I can imagine it introducing new ideas and new feelings to generations of people who perhaps, you know, were expecting something a lot more uniform. Yeah, and I, I had uh, I had death threats uh, for a couple of years after. No, seriously, I had death threats. Um, there are there are a number of people out there, what you might call fundamentalist metal fans, who hated what I did to Opeth, what they perceived I did to Opeth. Right. Uh, I, t- I take that as a badge of honour. I continue to this day to take it as a badge of honour when I upset anyone that has a kind of fundamental view of of how music should be, or, or, yeah, or yeah. you know, or listens within a very specific set of parameters i mean that to me that's kind of anathema no pun intended so <laughs> yeah. um but i think the elephant in the room here is that michael was very open and very curious about the possibilities of music and that's why that's why it was possible he was also a very very convincing brilliant singer and that enabled him to flip from the sort of death metal cookie monster you know vocal style to almost Jeff Buckley-esque flights of vocal fancy and a great songwriter as well. And, 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 you know, those things I think just made him stand out from the pack and ultimately therefore made Opeth and have made Opeth stand out from the pack. Well, well I think you say, you know, I think your presence was important because I think you probably allowed the band to become more of what they always wanted to become. And I think sometimes, you know, we kind of need external catalysts to help us realize who we are and what we really want to do sometimes yes i mean in that sense i just i I guess i would have been someone that would have certainly encouraged him i mean i was coming to that scenario having not much interest in you know in metal i mean i liked a bit of metal i was into my sugar and that kind of thing at the time so I, i had enough of an interest to want to do the project but i certainly wasn't coming at it from a fundamentalist metal fans point of view quite the opposite you know i'm coming at it from the point of view of what can we do you know, to make this music work on other levels too. And it was almost like a perfect storm in the sense that Michael was someone who was kind of becoming tired himself of the sort of parameters of extreme metal, wanted to break out of that. So in that sense, it was almost like encouraging each other, you know, so having someone like me in the room saying, well, that's a bit generic metal. Why don't we do something weird instead? Like, you know... And in some ways as well, that metal aspect might have seeped into some of your work with Porcupine Tree around that time as well, that there could have been a two-way influence. Yeah. yeah. Completely. Yeah, totally. I mean, In Absentia, which I was writing at the time, was was the first time Porcupine Tree had really embraced metal in a big way. Far cry from being a metal band, but certainly yeah. became a big part of the musical vocabulary at that point, in the same way that perhaps some of the more porcupine tree uh, sounding aspects became a part of the Opeth musical vocabulary. So it's almost like we were coming from completely different directions, but arriving at a similar, you know, and a couple of years later, we actually went on tour together. You know, that's how close we kind of become uh, in that sense. Interesting, interesting. I mean, Opeth, I mean, Michael's still one of my my very best friends. He's a a, a fantastic uh, artist. And uh, by the way, another artist that does not give a fuck. Does mm. not give a fuck what his fans expect. And I believe that is why he is one of the greats. He's, I think he, he will be seen as one of the greats because he's never tried to cater for his audience. And again, most of the metal scene do. I suppose Metallica are one exception to that, aren't they, in terms of sort of huge metal bands. They have taken a few left turns, you know. They have, although they've backtracked, haven't they, mm. a little bit? I think I think they they had a really tough time when they did that record with Lou Reed, <laughs> <Yeah>. uh, <laughs> which, which is the, the one metal... Metallica album I've got. <laughs> yeah, which is which the metal fans really really kick back on, and it's a shame in a way because I guess they 
they panicked. Uh, and it's, you know, it's understandable. It's an understandable response. No, I, th- I think you're entirely right. Because I was going to say that, you know, maybe that's it with, you know, I think Björk has, has backtracked, Metallica have backtracked. And when we're talking maybe about, say, Opeth, Radiohead, there are artists who haven't backtracked, you know, and, and obviously you can take it further with people like, um, you know, Mark Hollis, um, certainly Scott Walker, David Sylvie and other artists who just, went out and never returned. Don't care if they sell 10 million records or a thousand records. Don't care. Uh, and and it, it comes through in the, it does come through in the art, doesn't it? Um, you can hear the integrity. Absolutely. I think, you know, you can come back. Because obviously, I mean, you and I, to a certain extent, have come back to a more brash or electronic sound occasionally in, in recent years, you know, Future Bites and Love You To Bits, for example. But I think we came back to that out of pure enthusiasm. It was just something, I think I've said this before, I think that, you know, maybe we suffer a bit from musical ADHD, that we get to a certain state with music and then we've got to do something else, almost as a release and relief, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't see any problem with, you know, with revisiting things from your past. It's why you do it. It's the motivation for doing it. Is it desperation? Is it panic? Or is it because, you know what, I enjoyed doing that a few years ago. I'd like to do something else in that style again. I mean, that's Neil Young, isn't it? Let's move on. Talking of Neil Young, let's move on to singer-songwriters. Some great records from this year. Unfortunately, the Red House Painters album isn't one of them. (laughs) It certainly is not. Now, we both... And I wonder if Mark Kosselek himself would kind of acknowledge this, because this was the last Red House Painters record, and... You and I are massive Red House Painters fans. I think it's fair to say uh, we're, we're about as big as they come. Um, those first three or four records are so important to us, aren't they? It's phenomenal records, phenomenal records. Song from a, Songs from a Blue Guitar, also a great record. So this is, this is the sixth and final Red House Painters records. And it's like the gag has just run out of steam, isn't it? Well, it's almost as grey and colourless as the cover, really, isn't it? There's just something about this which has no light and shade, very little melody. I mean, you know, Kozilek continues to have an amazing and fascinating career, but um, he seems to reach a certain stage with some of his projects where they, they, they kind of blow me. You know, Sunkill Moon started off almost as, a, as a, um, a kind of new version of very early Red House Painters using a lot more acoustic instrumentation, a lot more melody, and now it's become almost um, a bizarre sort of vehicle for autobiographical raps. Oh, which I quite like some of those. Yeah, no, some of it's really, no, it's really interesting. He finds himself in new territory. But I'm saying that, you know, he's another artist who, you know, kind of occasionally backtracks and, um, you know, rediscovers his voice. So that kind of voice that we liked in Red House Painters, I'd say he sort of had again in some of the early Sunkill Moon albums. And now he's once more gone into, you know, a different type of sort of noise territory. But, you know, certainly melody is of less importance to him again. Yeah. So so let's not talk about an album that we don't rate. Let's talk about albums that we do rate. <laughs> yes. uh, uh, I, I, I mean, I only I wanted to mention that in passing because you and I both historically are such massive Red House Painters fans. This, well, this was definitely there's definitely a letdown, wasn't it? Yeah. Right? Well, Mark Eitzel also, you know, another artist, as you know, yes. was a huge yeah. American music club fan. Invisible Man still, is the record from this year. Yeah. Yeah. And, and unfortunately, you know, I think it is probably a comment on where his career was at that point. And as the Eitzel albums go, it's not bad, but it just blurs into the releases. You know, whereas Eitzel, again, has released some fantastic material over the last 
decade and has certainly rediscovered his enthusiasm um, and his sense of melody. But, you know, there's a certain period, you know, and I always find this at the beginning of decades, certain artists who'd made important statements in the previous decade suddenly seem lost. And for whatever reason, Eitzel, Kozilek, and to a degree, Divine Comedy, although I really rate the album, almost seemed lost in this new decade. Well, let's talk about a couple of albums that, that both of us do really like. Uh, Vincent Gallo, When. I mean, I've kind of put this in singer-songwriter. It kind of is, isn't it? Um, yeah, yeah. A, a very strange take on the genre. But So Vincent Gallo, for those of you who don't know, was, was a filmmaker. I mean, he, he kind of established himself as a filmmaker by this point. Yeah, Buffalo 66. Buffalo 66, yeah. But then he signed to Warp Records and made this incredibly beautiful lo-fi. He's got a kind of Chet Baker-esque quality, hasn't he, to his voice. Yeah. But very affecting and very beautiful. I mean, in some sense, I think you're right. The voice has got that real fragile, smooth Chet Baker quality. The songs themselves, the production, it's kind of lo-fi in a way that reminds me of early rock and roll and blues production, but also things like Young Marble Giants, that sort of very mm. primitive, post Very bedroomy. Very, yeah, bedroom yeah this is music in the bedroom, you're right. Yeah. But melodically, he's, again, he's, got a, he's actually got a beautiful gift for affecting melodies. So it almost has that kind of King Crimson Moonchild, the opening section of King Crimson Moonchild, where there's this yes. fragile, beautiful song with arpeggiated guitars. It reminds me of that as well. So I hear all of these things from sort of blues, rock and roll, post-punk, Chet Baker, early King Crimson in the mix. Um, and it's just quite a haunting and beguiling album that's, that's pretty consistent and pretty short. Yeah, it's very, very intimate sounding isn't it almost almost like you're sitting there with him in his bedroom while he plays you his demos it's kind of got yeah, that, yes, very that much kind so. of quality isn't it yeah uh, which which again so you know we've talked about this before i suppose sometimes in a world where so much pop music now is very produced very tweezed very homogenized and very glossy sounding it's lovely sometimes to hear something you know almost kind of lo-fi unachieving in a way but but has got that emotional quality that just bypasses all that just get straight to the nub of the matter in that respect yeah and i think in some ways you know this is the album for this year that somehow fulfills the sort of function that albums like uh, virginia astley's from gardens where we feel secure fulfilled in the years that was released was that 1983 i think you know where it's Something this like kind that. of fragile homemade unexpected mm. beauty you know again the john g perry album sunset wading it's one of those very unexpected, very honest peculiarities that is out there that I would um, very strongly write. Yeah, almost like the notion that it had been produced is absurd. You know, it sounds like it's unproduced music. Mm. It just, it's just, it just came out. It's just there. It sits there. Everything has that kind of very almost idiot savant kind of naturalism to it. It doesn't sound like it's been contrived in any respect. Yeah, so it's absolutely beautiful, beautiful record. Yeah, so that's definitely one of our top tips from this year, isn't it? What now? What about the Padster? We we keep talking about the pads. We no the pad. Yeah, the Macca. Macca. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and Macca number two. Yeah, uh, the Padster. We keep talking about the Padster and then cutting it out. <laughs> uh, poor old Paddy's ended up on, because we love everything he's done, don't we? We love everything Paddy Macaloon and Prefab Brown. We, we love done. everything about his music, his beard, his being. 
We love yeah. everything. His songwriting, his voice, everything. The Gunman, another story. It's a bit of an underrated one, this. I think it's a terrific record. It's a bit of a late career, you know, classic for me, produced by Tony Visconti. Some of the music he'd written for a, for a BBC TV show called Crocodile Shoes. Yeah. Just, I mean, the, the guy's incapable of writing a bad song, let's face it. Do you, do you rate this album, Tim? I wouldn't rate it as my favourite, but I still rate it, you know, like you, that everything he's done, I love. You know, from Swoon, which was much more of a raw sort of indie pop album in some ways, but a very sophisticated indie pop album, um, you know, to I Troll the Megahertz, which is one of my favourite albums of all time, which came a couple of years after this. And I think in some ways, maybe this album is slightly overshadowed by my love of I Troll the Megahertz, which I think is a wonderful piece of work, and also by the fact that I'm one of the few people who defends Andromeda Heights. I think that's got its I own... love that record. I oh, love it. a great... A lot yeah. of people... This, this is a bit of a face value, really, amongst people that I know, that really? they will criticise it, think that he'd lost his flair lyrically. I think it's a very beautiful record, which has a very specific soundscape, as does I Troll the Megahertz. Um, whereas this album, Gunman Other Stories, produced by Tony Visconti has much more of an organic band approach. But yeah, it's it's a really strong album, some very affecting pieces, a bit of a cowboy theme going on, partly because of the songs that were written for the TV show. So you've got his version of Cowboy Dreams that was a hit for Jimmy Nail. You've also got his astonishingly pretty version of Streets of Laredo, the old country classic. Mm. Um, so yeah, I really, I like it a lot. And it's yeah, an album. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I like you, I wouldn't say it's it's in my top two prefab sprout albums, but it in the sense that if this is one of the weaker entries in his catalogue, then that's a pretty amazing catalogue because I still really, really, really like it. I totally uh, and Andromeda, agree. Yeah. A, a, a ditto with Andromeda Heights. I didn't know that was I mean, I the title track, mm. Swans, you know, the, oh wow. Just gorgeous. I mean, it's a very syrupy record, isn't it, Andromeda Heights? Yeah. Maybe some people object to the sort of the syrupy keyboard sounds, but but I, I they're so syrupy. They're all, you used that word earlier, Disneyfied. They're almost Disneyfied, aren't they? That's one of the things I guess that this album hasn't got actually, because I think that a lot of no. Sprouts albums it's more organic. You know, yeah, yeah, you know, Swoon doesn't have it, and this doesn't have it, um, and. I quite like that quality in their music. There's almost an otherworldly quality that I think kind of comes to a peak on Andromeda Heights, but also um, from Langley Park to Memphis has mm. it by the bucket load. I yeah, mean, it is almost yeah. like 10 buckets of syrup poured yeah. on your head and it's a beautiful experience. I love it. I love Licking that, that too, syrup yeah. off your face. Um, anyway, Gillian uh, Welch, Time. These are other albums that came out this yeah. year in the singer-songwriter career. Gillian Welch, Time, Mark Lanigan, Field Songs. Richard Hawley, Late Night Final. That must be one of his very early ones. I think it is, yeah. And he, you know, carved a really interesting career for himself, almost sounding like some kind of latter-day Roy Orbison, which uh, which is impressive, you know. Uh, A couple of other records I really, really like from this year. Jim O'Rourke's Insignificance, which is almost his Leonard Skinner homage, (laughs) uh, if you can imagine such a thing from Jim O'Rourke. And the Bonnie Prince Billy record, East Down the Road, is another great record, follow-up to his masterpiece, I I See a Darkness. But not much of a step down. It's still pretty much up there, uh, consistently brilliant. uh, I think it's a really good year for for a lot of bands, actually. You know, they... There seems to be tremendous focus and fearlessness. And these albums are getting released by major companies in a lot of cases as well. You know, I know that the indie scene is also very healthy. But, um, yeah, I'm surprised in retrospect at how healthy and diverse 
a scene it seems to be really mm. also from this year low uh made things we lost in the fire which is a good record i mean low is a band that have you know never made a bad record i think all in all tim what we're saying is 2001 pop music and rock music is in pretty rude health isn't it which surprises me to discover that in a way well it's not only that pop and rock music is in rude health it's the number of bands that are out there kind of producing their best work or doing something different you know when we're talking about low it's almost like low were coming into their own during this period i know they'd been around before then but you know these are people with guitars doing fresh things and i think that kind of surprised me really that that particular culture of the rock band was incredibly rude health whereas you know in some ways i i sort of saw that as perhaps being over with the era of grunge and it clearly wasn't so 2001 let's now pick as is customary at this moment let's now pick our favorite album of the year and the album that we felt was perhaps the most influential in the longer term or seminal in that sense so you go first tim what what would be your favorite of the year and what would be your most influential of the year oh my god well you know what i'm going to say don't you what, what am I going to say? I'm going to say, I'm going to say, I don't know. It could be so many of them, is what I'm going to say. I'll tell you what I'm going to go for. I'm going to go for Radiohead's Amnesiac, because I think that was both a powerful statement, an emotional statement, and quite an innovative indication of what a rock band could be and where they could go. So that's my choice for both. I think that's a very good choice. I would struggle to argue. I think that album is a game changer. It was a game changer. It was the first time we'd really heard a rock band successfully integrate electronica into their sound. At least it was the most convincing example of it to me at that point. So I'd go with that. Um, my favourite, I think also Amnesiac 2, although I'm going to put in a, an extra vote for Aphex Twins Drugs. And I think Opeth's Blackwater Park and Tool's Lateralis were both very influential on the, the more extreme heavy rock side of, of the music industry. So uh, shout out to those two records too. Okay, well, comparatively succinct compared to some of our previous episodes, Tim. So mission accomplished and all that stuff. So if you have enjoyed this podcast, please do, as always, go and leave us a nice review on, on whichever platform you're using to listen to. Uh, give us some feedback. Feel free to point out any schoolboy errors we've made. And uh, we'll hopefully be back with uh, another episode fairly soon. Yeah, Eight, 1881. 1881. Okay, I'll give it a go. <laughs> Goodbye. Bye-bye.